Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, and welcome to the American Age Podcast. This is your host, C. Travis Webb, editor of the American Age, and I'm speaking to you from Irvine, California. Hey, this is Seth Rodney. Uh, typically, Stephen uh, Fullwood would have been the second voice you hear, but he's not on the podcast today. I think Travis will explain in a moment why. Um, but I am a former editor and a uh, senior critic at Hyperallergic and now a freelance arts writer. Uh, if you want to know what I'm up to, please take a look at my brand new website, sephrodney.com. I'm coming to you today from Newburgh, New York. This is to remind our listeners that we practice a form of what we call intellectual intimacy, which is giving each other the space and time to figure out things out loud and together. Uh, and as uh, Seth said, uh, Stephen isn't with us today. Um, we would expect that he'll be back next next time we speak, I guess in two weeks. Um, uh, and uh, and certainly wish him well with uh, with everything he's handling right now. He's healthy. And safe and all that good stuff. And it's nothing uh, catastrophic uh, from a universal point of view. There's no reason to worry about St uh, Stephen, but, you know, he's got some uh, personal stuff he has to take care of. So, um, so uh, probably a shorter podcast than we've been doing lately, but I mean, I guess kind of more of a standard length that we, that we used to do. But, you know, so slightly shorter conversation today. Um, and Seth and I chatted a bit yesterday. And uh, I had suggested the idea of underdogs. And the reason this occurred to me is that is, is two for, for two reasons. Um, uh, there are two reasons this occurred to me. So um, uh, one, uh, I read an article in, um, and now I'm going to forget where I read it. Um, Cause I, you know, I read so many different news uh, sites. It was on just kind of, um, Steph Curry's um, sort of role in the la over the last decade. Um, you know, certainly the initially the role of as sort of the underdog, the wow, the golden boy, and then kind of nearly the role of villain, at least the Golden State Warriors um, uh, when they landed Kevin Durant and just sort of became like too powerful, right? They're sort of like the empire. Like it was just, they, they were too powerful. Um, and then of course, you know, had that really bad injury prone season. Um, and then back to this season where of course yesterday, uh, well, I guess when you hear this, it will be a few days ago, but yesterday when we're recording, they won uh, uh, the NBA championship. And this article was just about this arc, this sort of narrative arc. And it didn't necessarily analyze the narrative arc. It just, it just uh, mentioned it. And I, I actually thought of Seth when I read this because Seth and I, I don't watch as much basketball as I used to. I think Seth, do you still watch uh, as much as you used to? No, not at all. Not even close. In fact, uh, yeah. What but I, this is what we used to talk about this all the time. We would talk yeah. about when, when Steph was out here in California. Yeah, we would talk about basketball all the time, and so it made me think. I was like, "Oh, yeah." So anyway, so I thought it would be something that would be fun for us to talk about. So yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, I did some reading on this, and if it turns out that that season, the horrendous season when Steph Curry was injured and Clay Thompson was injured, and they had lost some personnel, um, KD had left. Uh, was 2020. It was only two years ago. Um, and, and, and I remember it being right. for me looking at the, at the Golden State Warriors. I remember thinking, and, and, and by the way, the article I read in Sports Illustrated, no, it wasn't Sports Illustrated. It was one of those, um, sports oriented, um, news outlets detailed 
that season and talked about how they were on a losing streak that was only rivaled by, at that point, a longer losing streak in like 1964 or something. So mm-hmm. it was it was his, historic how bad they were. Yeah. And I remember thinking, seeing a couple of highlights from those games, how how yeah i thought how the mighty have fallen like because because golden state when katie was on the team was bulletproof i mean i felt like they could walk through any basically any team in the nba any other team yeah and yeah. and and then they lost him and andre godalo went away and um some key pieces they lost you know andrew bogut and uh i just felt like it just it just it just looked like a team that was a shadow of itself. And mind you, when the Golden State was was um, winning before 2020, they someone said this about them that they had the best backcourt perhaps in NBA history. And and I think that was that may be true. I mean, I'm not enough of a scholar to like you know, really like argue this to the to the nth degree, sure, but. Sure, yeah. But yeah, man, they were amazing. And I actually am really glad that they came back. It's like, I love their narrative arc. I like that they, they, they claw, kind of clawed their way back to the top. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sort of, you know, had their had their year in the wilderness um, or a year and a half, I guess, in the wilderness um, and, you know, came back to, to win it all. That the, you know, I... Probably neither, since neither one of us watches much basketball as we as we used to. Probably not. I would not have a lot of insightful things to say about their season. Uh, you probably have more insightful things to say about their season. But I do find it really interesting, having watched sports off and on, uh, inconsistently, but off and on from sometimes very attentively, and other times, you know, a season will go by or two where I, I kind of lose track of things, other than sort of the big stories. Uh, and kind of, you know, vaguely aware of who's on top and who's good that year is, um, you know, why, why does winning engender such resentment, not in the league, but in the culture in general? So Mm. I think, you know, so obviously when, what it reminded me of when they, uh, when they drafted Kevin Durant and the story and the feeling around Golden State changed immediately. Like the stories, the tenor of the stories changed immediately. Mm. Um, and then it, it immediately became a personality, you know, between, you know, who was going to be the real MVP between Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. And the, like the media sort of, you know, like jumped on to this, um, this potential rivalry. Mm. Which I get that there's just a story there and rivalry, you know, can is interesting and kind of internal discord and uh, court intrigue um, is kind of endlessly fascinating to monkeys. I get that. Um, <laughs> same thing, same thing. Uh, same, well, it is. I mean, you know, so, dear, you know, dear, it, dear it, viewer, it, dear listener, Travis is talking yeah. about you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and me. Himself. And me, and, yeah, 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 to be and, fair. Yeah, All right. Yeah. yeah. And, and himself. So, um, you know, but certainly the same thing with Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal. And there was probably for sure. more there, there. Uh, for sure, for, that. for sure. But you know, then the other thing it reminded me of is when uh, my, you're going to remember the third man. I'm not going to remember the the third man. So Dwayne Wade, uh, Miami Heat, when um, 
when LeBron James went to Miami Heat and Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, and then who was their famous third man? I am blind. Yeah, it was the, it was the forward, um, Chris Bosh. Thank you. So, you know, same thing happened there. I mean, yes, you know, um, uh, yes, LeBron James handled the sort of the announcement. Is that what they called yes. it when he <laughs> announced that he was leaving? Yeah, the announcement or whatever. Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, yeah. that was absurd. The, the, the but, decision. <laughs> but also, yeah, or was it the decision? I think you're right. I think it was the decision. I think I that's think right. So. Yeah. Um, and But all of a sudden, this, you know, sort of powerhouse team that had clearly been smart uh, about, you know, how to sort of create this powerhouse lineup. All of a sudden, they were the villains of the NBA again. And and yesterday, when I had mentioned it to you, you know, I was I was like, ah, you know, what, what is this about? And then I the, the common thread that I came up with uh, was money, right? So they bought. I mean, they essentially bought their their bulletproof team, mm. whereas the other teams that have been just sort of so dominant in their time. Uh, the Lakers, for example, even though we focused on the court intrigue, um, didn't engender the same kind of resentment other than resentment that the Lakers engender for a lot of East Coast teams and a lot of East Coast fans. Because right. um, the quintessentially LA team, which I get, um, uh, even though I was, I've was i been a Lakers fan since I was quite young because I grew up out here. But um, the, uh, uh, and then the Bulls, um, also did not engender that kind of uh, dislike generally universally, right? I mean, of course, there were individual there are pockets of the country that that didn't like them. And it's because I think you know I, I I was gonna throw this out there um because it felt more organic, right? I mean, mm. so Kobe Bryant got drafted. I mean, certainly he was a phenom, but he was, you know, 18, 19. He was not a mm-hmm. dominant force in the league. Mm-mm. Uh, you know, uh Jordan was still playing, maybe not at his tip top, but was still playing at a very high level. Mm-hmm. And so their maturation seemed organic and natural. And so their dominance was more palatable to people. But as soon as you build the team in a season with money. Um, like in general, the American press, and maybe if we read the press as a as a barometer for general uh, sentiment, which I don't, I really don't know that we should do, uh, maybe ever, maybe anymore, depending on uh, on what you think of it. Uh, but maybe generally, the populace too kind of turns on on that. So I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I I I think so. I I wasn't aware, and I was trying to recall whether or not uh, I I had a feeling that people really hated the Lakers when they were on top or hated the Detroit Pistons or hated the Celtics. Uh, And and I don't, Mm. I don't, I don't, I don't, I think part of the issue for me is that I just don't spend, and have never really spent much time reading comment threads. Uh, And I haven't Mm. spent much, spent much time thinking about the drama Uh, and there's a lot of drama that is covered in the, in, um, in legacy media uh, outlets uh, that focus on sports, mm-hmm. I but but I do I have some vague feeling that yes Miami was hated and I remember them I remember um, there being this general sentiment of well um, yeah they just kind of like put that team together with money and and I think I do think Americans resent that but was that weird because. At the heart of our culture is this deep, deep 
a veneration of wealth, right? Like, like, like people, lo- like, I mean, I mean, keeping up with the Kardashians, for example, yeah, this, this yeah. is all about conspicuous displays of wealth. Well, I mean, and, and here's the, the sort of clincher, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, anecdote. Do you remember when, I think it was, um, I have such a hard time keeping track of the Jenners, how many different Jenners there are. There, <laughs> I'm not, not going to be able to help you. but <laughs> Basketball players, internet moguls that married to different, I, I rappers, I don't, I don't remember, but it was one of the younger ones. I think she's married to Travis Scott now. Um, the one that's like really, really, really pretty. Um, I think Kylie, I think... There was a moment, okay. yeah, there was a moment, I think it's Kylie, there was a moment a year or two ago uh, when she tweeted out that she was close to being a billionaire with her makeup line and various other products that she right. was right, right. putting on the market. People donated money to her. People, just people, just like donated. Well, I, I did to, not know this story. Donated money to her just to get her over the line so she could call herself a billionaire. Like, wh- like, what is wrong with serious? us? Yes. I remember reading oh, this. Why? Yeah, I read this in like Deadspin or Gawker or something. Like, yeah, like, like people were donating. And it's, you know, like, it's not, it wasn't rumor. It was like substantiated. Like, people went on social media and like, said, yes, I'm giving Kaya oh. my money so she can get over the, the hump. Like, that's our culture. So it's baffling Whoa. to me. It's baffling to me that people would be like, oh, no, they can't spend money and put a super team together. It's like, what, what the fuck well, do you... In all we, of these... When? Yeah, I mean, all, all of these... I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm still sort of reeling from that. I did not, uh, yeah, and yeah. I'm not surprised by a lot of things, but wow. I mean, that one is, that's really something else. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um. So, you know, and all of these teams, professional sports teams, I mean, they're all owned by billionaires exactly. or a billionaire, billionaire equivalent conglomerates. Right. That, that own these teams. And I don't think sports is all about money. I think that is a misreading. And I, you know, you hear, Agreed. hear it was something that was, it was something you would hear a lot. I know you and I have had this conversation many years ago. It was certainly, it was a conversation that floated around a lot in the late nineties, early aughts about how like college sports was more pure because it was, yeah. the, the athletes weren't being paid and stuff like that. Yeah. And I always found it a really stupid argument. Like Agreed. I really just, it's, it's a dumb, it's a dumb argument. I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think sports is spoiled by money. I think there are individuals in sports who get spoiled by money and, and mm-hmm. whatnot. But I mean, you know, when those people are out on the court for the vast majority of them, they are playing to win the game. Mm-hmm. They are not playing to win. Now they're, they've gotten to where they are and they have the lifestyle that they have because of the kind of money that are in those events. Mm-hmm. But I mean, these are competitors and, mm-hmm. um, and you, and it, you can, and when people deviate from that, when you can sense that they're out there, not for the game, but they're out there for the paycheck, then that's when opinion turns on them, you mm-hmm. know, or, you know, sort of their, their commitment to play or their commitment to the game. It's almost as if when, 
so like there's all this money there. And of course these teams exist in, you know, sort of vast oceans of wealth mm-hmm. um, and, you know, have lifestyles that, uh, that most normal people won't even approach in, you know, the orbit of. Right. In um, their lifetimes. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but there has to be a kind of, and I, I'm careful to use this word, but I think this is what to call it. There has to be a kind of authenticity around why they're doing what they're doing or why a team is doing what it's doing, that it's not really about the money for them, right? It's mm. about this other thing. They're like mm. sort of pointing away from themselves or whatever, mm. you know, like pointing away from the money, pointing away from the Corvettes, the helicopters and and the Kardashians and whatnot. Yeah. But the, but but here's the thing. But what you just said is kind of a counterexample to that, right? Because the if if Kylie is like, I'm almost a billionaire, and people are like, Well, what? Let me get you there. Right. Like, I don't even know what to do with that one. Like right. that that you know. So I propose this sort of you know like you know kind of cute little reading about you know how we're misdirecting ourselves from uh, uh, from uh, wealth and material gain but but that is an example that that absolutely undoes that argument right i mean because that's just about money like literally yeah and well money and status i mean it's really i think ultimately about a mm. kind of status uh i do think that we human beings and us americans are you know a subset of that group are uh, living our contradictions <laughs> i just feel like yeah. americans really not they prostrate themselves before wealth they mean i mean then i really want to use that word they prostrate themselves before wealth mm-hmm. but at the same time there is this slight underdog mentality like oh the the person was like i, I hate this phrase i hate i mean this may be the last time i use it pulling themselves up by their <laughs> bootstraps that's just a stupid <laughs> phrase um, this will not, if this were a short story, this is when the, the omniscient narrator would, inter- would interject. This is not the last time Seth will use this phrase. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, and that makes me hate it even more. Uh, but I think there's a part of the American ethos that is animated by that desire to sort of be the David winning out against the Goliath. Like, I, I just, sure, I don't, I sure. don't, I don't, I mean, I don't get it. I don't know how to. I mean, that's, sort a, of that's in- a perennial story. I, mm. th- I think that's well said. And that is a perennial story, though. I get that. Mm. I mean, the mm. David and Goliath story, there's a reason it's remained in our psychology for, you know, thousands of years. I mean, mm. the idea of, of the expected outcome being subverted, right? I mean, that's the, that something unexpected could happen. Um, you know, and, you know, I could probably kind of rattle on about, you know, what sort of the underlying wish fulfillment that that satisfies, you know, maybe Mm. around death or something like that, that maybe the end will turn out differently than it appears that it'll turn out, Mm. but there might also just be a real pleasure in surprise. Right. Mm. And, and the surprise being, uh, something welcome. And, and so Maybe the maybe the sports thing kind of like it. 
we don't want things to be that predictable or maybe that like sort of, you know, offends, um, offends that sensibility, um, the kind of the, the mechanical brute. So it's almost brute, right? I mean, there's a kind of brutality, which is funny to talk about physical sports because they are so physical and rough, but there's just kind of a brutality, right? When it's just big team by, you know, big players, big team smash, you know, I mean, it's really, or, or you uh, know, maybe, maybe what the way it is, is that there's a, there's that narrative arc. And what happens is for a while, the team is the underdog. So maybe the Lakers when they first draft Kobe is an underdog team. Um, um, and then it's slowly over time they become the empire. And it's precisely mm. when they become the empire and people start to look to the rebels. And I think maybe mm. that might be why it, for a lot of people, um, the, the, the situation with LeBron, the decision to go to Miami, maybe that's part of the reason why he was subjected to so much hatred because it looked like he was joining the empire. He used to be a rebel. He had, he had this rebel yeah. cause with the Cavaliers, which nobody had ever heard of actually, I think before right. LeBron was there. Right, 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 right? Right, like right. I don't even, I was like right. Cavaliers have it. The Cleveland has a team oh, since when? <laughs> uh, and it looked like he was joining the empire. But what was weird to me was that remember that game when there was a like game six, I think, of the finals, and they were playing San Antonio, the Spurs, when Parker was on there and Duncan mm-hmm. was on there. And mm-hmm. there, there was that, that final play of the game, and they were, and they, and they were trying to, the Spurs were ahead, and they were trying to tie it up to get, I think, to get to overtime or try to tie it up to get, or, or, or win the game outright. And, I think it was Chris Bosch. Somebody put up a shot. Chris Bosch got the rebound and threw it out to Ray Allen in the corner. And Ray Allen put mm-hmm. up that three oh. and he almost landed yes. on Parker and got it. And, and, and I, I think yeah, they went a on. To, moment. Yeah, I think they went on to win the series, didn't they? I do not remember. Yeah. Um, but there was someone listening will Google, but, uh, yeah. but yes, that, the, the, that shot and that collision, uh, are, are pretty, indelibly marked in my memory i do wait i do remember that. but it seemed to me at that moment that if it, that it felt at least like miami heat were the rebels and it was san antonio who yeah. was the empire i mean san antonio was the empire i mean they they were i mean they just you know the, the criticism that was usually leveled against them was uh you know just they were kind of a boring team yes, to boring. watch because yeah. they were so focused on fundamentals. Um, and, you know, Tim Duncan was such a consummate and subdued, uh, role player and leader. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, San Antonio never really seemed to capture, you know, the imagination. I mean, so, you know, those, you know, those examples, those two examples that you just gave of the, you know, obviously the heat in San Antonio, you know, makes me kind of brings me back to the idea that, you know, how much, how many insubstantial things contribute to our collective feelings about a team? And I'm not saying it's accurate, right? I'm not saying that that reading of San Antonio is accurate or that reading of LeBron James and the heat is accurate, but, but they definitely, there are these kind of invisible variables that contribute substantially, substantially to how we feel about our sports teams and our, and I guess, you know, in, in the instance of your, uh, if it's Kylie Jenner, if that's who the, the right uh, one of the Jenners is, mm-hmm. um, 
or Kardashians, if, if that contributes to our feeling about celebrity in general, mm. that, I mean, just all of these, like, of course, another near billionaire that did something like that would be eviscerated, right? I'm not saying every other, but it's mm. very easy to imagine mm. someone, uh, and not just like some white dude, right? I, I mean, mm. that's that that's an easy, it's kind of low-hanging fruit. Mm. M- many other examples, too, that I think kind of subvert kind of stereotypical uh class and race categories that would really piss people off. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, I mean, there's pr- probably a, a much longer list that mm-hmm. would really piss people off that went on social media and was like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm, jo- I'm almost a billionaire. Like, and it would, I mean, no doubt she also got a lot of vitriol for that too. I'm sure she did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but she, but, but it elicited donations like that. So, I mean, there are all these, you know, in, in to to open it up for a second it's it is those it's those things right those those kind of invisible variables those mis- that that really for me at least are what kind of undo sort of crass class um assessments of culture and mm. politics and mm. kind of human interaction, mm. you know, strictly hierarchical mm-hmm. um, stories and narratives and systems. Mm-hmm. Like that's just not my experience of living in the world. It's just not that predictable. What is going to capture people's imaginations and why? So I think what you're kind of saying without saying is that you, though I, I don't know if you do respect his position you may respect his position, and if you do, you still disagree with him profoundly, um, Pierre Bourdieu. Because for you, it's not just, it doesn't come down yeah. to just uh, plain old socioeconomic uh, scramble for limited resources. Like, that's, it's not, it's not just about that. Like, there are these stories, and I would agree yeah. with you. I think the problem with Bourdieu is that he's always kind of given culture too short a shrift. Like he just doesn't respect culture enough. And, and I want to say yeah. that the, the stories that we tell ourselves have uh, a lot to do with uh, the, the ways that we behave with each other. And I mean, I mean, I know you know this, and I know that this is very much in your wheelhouse. I mean, your whole, if I remember, your whole PhD study really focused on this notion that that there's that a certain kind of belief system is actually an organizing principle is actually a way of like creating community um that's an oversimplification i know yeah you, no no but i mean that's certainly in there for sure mm-hmm. um and you know i you know whether there's this kind of a limited stock of these story types or mm-hmm. whatever is is a pretty open question mm-hmm. but you know i it seems just it seems inarguable or unarguable to me mm-hmm. that there's something else going on there. And I mean, clearly it's not unarguable. People argue it all the time, mm-hmm. but, uh, but it, uh, is it inarguable or unarguable? I think I it's, I think I mean, it's I mean, in. I, okay. Inarguable. Okay. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, and that sounds right to me. Unarguable sounds wrong. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, you know, it's probably something that, would always put me on the other side of that because there are just these examples that we come up with that just do not, you know, and not for everyone, you know, Bourdieu, I, I respect his work a lot. Um, 
And maybe for a lot of people, it is this sort of network affiliation and what ends up, you know, clearly COVID's a pretty clear example of sort of, uh, you know, health getting politicized on either extreme, right? Mm -hmm. Even though health itself is a pretty existential baseline concern for for people in general, but it it gets inflected politically. So clearly those kind of analyses have power Mm. and value, and I wouldn't want to undercut them entirely at all. But there are definitely, definitely these other like wild elements that just sort of grab you, right? Or you, like you just and for whatever weird reason, and and just you know can't quite you know take hold, even though all of the marketing is behind it and all of the budget is behind it, and you've you've drafted all of the star players, and everything should mean that you're going to win or that you're going to come out on top. And you just don't. Like the New York Knicks. The New York Knicks. Like yeah, every, yeah, like a great, 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 great exactly. Like, yeah. Just, yeah. I just like, I just don't get it. Like there was the one shining moment, I think it was in the 90s, when they had Ewing, they had John Starks, they had uh, the guy who came from UNLV, Larry Johnson. They had um, uh, Houston, I think his name is, the shooting guard. Um, there was a moment when it seemed like they might just challenge the Bulls for the crown. Like they might, they were, they were close, right? And it just yeah, never yeah. freaking Anthony Mason and they, um, was also on the team and they never freaking got there. And it was just like, what is the, what, it, what the, what is missing? What was, what was the, like the little secret sauce that could have turned that team into a dynasty? I don't know if it was the coaching. Yeah, the, I don't know. The Knicks are a fantastic example. They are New York's, you know, I mean, I know, okay, so maybe the Nets, you you might get some argument there, but mm. certainly they're, they're, they're New York's team. Mm-hmm. And, and they haven't like, I, I mean, you couldn't, I mean, and during that time you've had the Yankees, uh, you know, like beca- you'd be a dominant force. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, so they're just, there are just these other things in the mix um, that, uh, that honestly, I mean, thank God, because it'd be really fucking boring. And that's the other thing too. Like, I just kind of feel like the world that some of these people inhabit, these intellect, it's just, they're just so drab. Mm. I mean, they're just really, uh, like, do you really find the world that sort of uh, predictable and that pat and that sort of uh, structured? Um, I just, you know, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't do it for me. Yeah, no. It's it's a really unimaginative way to live. I think that uh, the you know I'm a I'm ultimately I'm a kind of storyteller. I, I realized this about myself a few years back, and one of the things that uh, I've come to realize through realizing that is that I'm always kind of looking out for stories but there always there always are these stories around that don't that that seem to supersede or transcend the sort of base sort of um what's the word calculate the base um calculations that would be made by i don't know by um by uh insurers or by um mm. Actuaries, uh, yeah, yeah, actuaries, or by um, 
um, uh, Marxist sociologists, you know, like I just, mm-hmm. yeah, there's, there's, yeah. there's something else in our mix that is, wh- what was it? Wait a minute. Isn't that a line from Shakespeare that is kind of apropos? Something about something, the fault is in our stars. Uh, yes, but it's meant ironically, but yes, but I mean, yeah, I mean, everything is in Shakespeare. So <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. yeah. I, that's, that's an incomplete um, thought, but it was something about the fault is yeah. in our stars, something, something, I don't even remember, but someone will hopefully, uh, uh, listen, um, to this and email well, this me. Is Rome, and that's me know. Romeo, Romeo, and Juli- Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, is it? I mean, is, yeah, I'm pretty sure let's, okay. Now okay. I've, I've put myself on record. Oh my God, no! It's uh, that is actually. Oh no, yeah, it's the fault is not dear Brutus is not in our stars, right? That that's the fault is not in our stars is uh, Julius Caesar. Ah, ah, yeah, yeah. and that's Brutus's line to Julius Caesar, so or to Caesar. Um, Yeah, the fault is not in our stars. So does so Um, uh, does that follow from what? we were talking about or is that completely ten, uh, non sequitur? Uh, I would say probably, I would say I'm sure if we talked for 10 minutes, we'd find a connection. <laughs> so, <laughs> But n- I, not, not a ready one. I don't think not, not an easy one. Yeah, um, okay. uh, but, right. but you know, it's funny about that, but it is a great, it is a great EG example, right? Because mm-hmm. so here, this sort of, you know, misremembered quotation and then misattributed by me, mm-hmm ends up generating a different kind of conversation. I mean, mm-hmm. w- 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 there's no structure and that's just, those are just wild variables interacting mm-hmm. with one another mm-hmm. and, and, you know, producing different things. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, and now I probably won't forget that again. So, yeah. Um, All right. So uh, shall okay, we, think, shall we, shall we put a yeah, pin yeah. in it there? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, obviously a shorter conversation than we normally have, but mm-hmm. uh uh, Stephen, if you're listening, uh, you know, hope everything uh, is going okay. And uh, I, you'll catch us next week with our note. And then, you know, we'll pick it back up again. I think, um, Seth, you had said that Guardian article around mm-hmm. about uh, a narrative framing in mm-hmm. journalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that might be something for us, the three of us to chew on a little bit. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. So shout out to our brother, Stephen, and hope to see you soon. Okay. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.